Welcome to Talk on the Wild Side. I'm Rob Smith, and in this episode of the podcast that aims to leave you feeling absolutely wild, we're going behind the scenes at the museum, the Natural History Museum, and taking a look below the surface at the impact that the bison are having in the Bleen woodland on the very soil with a molecular biologist. Only 1% of microorganisms has been so far discovered and known to science, so we might all be stepping on a whole bunch of new species that we have no clue what they're doing and what is their role in the environment and ecosystems. I've been led right up the garden path this month as Kent Wildlife Trust encourages people to let nature do some of the work for you with their Wilder Garden project. So I've become much less neat and I found that more interesting. Much more interesting. It's amazing what pops up, isn't it, of its own accord? Absolutely. I mean... Uh, I just find it endlessly fascinating. And I met a friendly chiropterologist, which is to say, a bat expert. Hazel Ryan is from the Kent Bat Group. I got up close and personal with a pipistrelle. So unfortunately this bat can't go back to the wild because he was caught by a cat and injured. Uh Um, His injuries have healed, but he just can't fly well enough. But it is one of our smallest species as well. Yeah, I mean, it's only sort of as big as your thumb really, isn't it? Yes, yeah. And I've been having a chat with Ellen Wilson, who's helping a cluster of farmers in East Kent be more nature-friendly and is adamant she has the best job in the world. It's absolutely beautiful. It's such a unique area. Um, So we're in the low world of Kent. um, And, yeah, absolutely beautiful. Some wonderful wildlife around here and, yeah, amazing farms. So... Loads of great stuff in this episode, and we will start with some serious science. You've almost certainly heard of the fact that bison have been released into the wild in Kent as part of the Wilder Bleen project. In fact, the first bison to roam freely in the UK in thousands of years. It's an incredibly ambitious scheme to see what happens when a patch of land that's been commercially forested for many years is allowed to return to a more natural state, with bison being the principal engineers of changing things up. They're massive, they're heavy, they knock down small trees, they strip bark off others, they create dust wallows to bathe in, they rub their shaggy coats off in the summer and leave great tufts of bison and wool floating around and it's hoped that all of these things taken together will over time actually start altering the woodland and allow a host of different species plant as well as animal to move in and do their own thing but how do you monitor that how do you track those changes over time and see what's really going on well one way is to engage the services of a molecular biologist someone like Piotr Kuba from the Natural History Museum, who's embarking on a project to look at what is going on in the very soil of the Bleen to see how all those changes above ground affect what happens below the surface. I met up with Piotr in his lab at the Natural History Museum in London. So, Piotr, here we are in your lab in the, the depths of the Natural History Museum. I mean, we're in a really privileged place to actually come in and, and see this because not many people get to see the stuff that goes on literally behind the scenes at the, uh, the museum. Just talk me through, first of all, where we're at, what, what, we're, what space we're in here. 
Uh, well, it's good to have you here and I'm happy to show you around uh, the backstage that, as you said, not everyone has access to. Uh, we are uh, now in the molecular labs of the Natural History Museum uh, where we are performing all the research uh, focusing on DNA and uh, genes and genomes, sequencing, uh, sequencing the genomes and genes of wide variety of organisms and samples. And we're specifically having a bit of a conversation around the Bleen project and the impact that the bison are starting to have on the soil there because you as a molecular biologist are actually literally digging around in the soil and see what's going on. Exactly, this is how it looks like and uh, I wanted to say that I'm very happy we are part of this project. This is a very exciting opportunity to do, do a good science and uh, actually to check uh, how the uh, our great engineers of nature, bisons, actually affect uh, the soil uh, here in the UK and in the Bleen Forest. Uh, so exactly, that's uh, how it looks like. We have to go into the field and uh, with, our, uh, with our collaborators from the Kent Wildlife, actually they collected the first batch of samples for us. Uh, but we are hoping to participate in further collections as well. Uh, to go into the field actually because us as molecular biologists we are usually locked in the in the labs but uh, sometimes we are released <laughs> and we can go out <laughs> and participate in other parts of the sampling process now some people might be confused about what has molecular biology got to do with wilding rewilding conservation mm. so what are you actually doing what are, what's the point of the sampling yes uh, so after the samples are, are uh, collected and sent to us, uh, we are processing them in a way that we can extract the DNA from all the contents in the soil because, as you know, the soil is the source of a huge variety of organisms and biodiversity. Uh, literally 25% of all the organisms rely somehow on soil and only 1% of microorganisms has been so far discovered and known to science and are known to science. So we might all be stepping on a whole bunch of new species that we have no clue what they're doing and what is their role in the environment and ecosystems. So with the molecular biology, it is easier to study the diversity of those microbes because uh, with classical methods where you have to take the sample and try to grow colonies of different bacteria, not all of them can grow in laboratory condition and it's literally impossible to grow them. So they skip the attention, they are being missed. And with our methods, we extract the DNA from all the content from the soil, so all the bacteria, all the fungi that uh, were in this, present in the soil and also fragments of bigger organisms such as plants, parts of roots, right? and uh, also cells from bison, for example, can be present in the soil, right? Uh, uh, and even human uh, DNA can be found. Uh, so with this extraction method, we extract the total DNA from the sample. And then using special machines, we sequence it. So we read the message encrypted in the DNA. Okay, and you, uh, you, before we've actually started recording this conversation, you were showing me some of the kit that you actually used to use. And it's like proper Star Trek kind of stuff isn't it that you've got a reader that you can put a, a drop of um soil sample exactly. into yeah. and then it literally works out every single different bit of dna exactly. it can find in that sample uh, it's not uh, it's not as easy as as that we are we don't put the soil directly on it first mm -hmm. it's a quite longish process it can take up to a few hours to extract the dna then you have to purify the dna because soil contains lots of 
unwanted material, right, that could block all this technology and all, 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 all the reader's sensors, right? So we need to get rid of it, and that uh, takes some time. After that, we can load the sample of purified, just pure DNA directly on the sensors, on, on the machine. And this reader is called sequencer, the machine that deciphers the information. And so in one, because you literally put a drop of purified DNA sort of source material in from yes. a, how many different species or strands of DNA do you expect to get from one sample? Uh, from soil sample, uh, we are expecting to, <laughs> to detect hundreds of species uh, of different fungi, different bacteria primarily. Uh, it might be possible to detect as well uh, bigger or organisms such as earthworms, for example, or as I mentioned, the remnants of uh, plant material. Mm -hmm. uh, but that is quite unpredictable, uh, especially if you don't see uh, with your own eyes the parts of roots right of different plants then you can predict sort of okay we will see this plant in this uh, results right so part of the project is to see how things change over time the kind of impact that the bison are actually going to have on the soil is that is that the primary bit that you're looking for exactly uh, the uh, i believe the the whole design of this experiment of uh, wildebeest rewildering is to see uh, the total impact of the bisons on the, on the changes in biodiversity and our lab is focusing on this one aspect of soil biodiversity because we want to check if some discrete changes uh, in the diversity are happening when the bisons are present and we want to see how the bison affects the, also the soil diversity, which you cannot see with your own eyes. You need to use this piece of equipment. So physically, how do you think the bisons are going to change the soil? You know, because mm -hmm. they're just some animals wandering about. What's yeah. that going to do? Why is that going to make a difference? Yeah, the presence of the bisons and uh, the more so like the effects of their activities uh, will affect the uh, soil diversity uh, in a way that we expect more species of bacteria will appear that will help, for example, to store the CO2 in the soil. Uh, the, the, they, will, they should affect the diversity of the plants. This is most important. Higher diversity of the plants helps to store the CO2, right? And uh, since the CO2 is being CO2 is a big plants. issue at the moment, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and it's causing the climate changes. And plants are absorbing it through the ph photosynthesis. So the more plants we have and more diversity of the plants we have, the more uh, carbon dioxide is being removed from the atmosphere. And is it too simplistic to say that the more biodiversity you've got in the soil, the healthier the soil is and the more it can... Of course, the more plants can, uh, can uh, thrive in that soil and more of them can store carbon. Uh, Bacteria themselves, different species should encroach the soil because as I, as I mentioned, as the bisons mechanically also change the structure of the soil, they uh, introduce more air inside the soil, uh, which helps different species of microbes that require oxygen for their activity to encroach. And actually those bacteria that also are capable of performing photosynthesis, they require oxygen as well, the presence of oxygen. So they will support this uh, process even more. So the, physically, the way the bison knock down trees and they yeah. have their dust wallows and the way their hooves dig into the ground, exactly. all of that is, is part of it. Exactly. This is, the, this is the part of it. Not only bisons themselves uh, regarding airing of the soil contribute to this. Uh, moles by digging their, uh, their burrows and uh, holes and channels in the soil, they help with this. Earthworms as well. That's why they are super important.
actually every component of the nature is super important although it sometimes it might from our point of view we might think why this species even exists but in nature we have to remember every single species is equally precious and it's very early on in the project isn't it you've only had sort of one sample so you can't sort of say whether whether they're making a difference yet so how long before we start to know what kind of an impact they're actually having on the soil yes so the first batch of samples that we received uh, are our baseline samples, uh, which were collected before the time the, the bisons were released. Mm-hmm. These samples will tell us about the current condition of the soil diversity in the area where the bisons are, were, were being planned to release. And now uh, our aim is to collect the samples every two years uh, to see uh, when the bisons are present and we'll compare them from the exact same locations mm-hmm. Uh, and at the same time of the year to exclude the variability of the seasons and uh, maybe the variability of the soil itself. So we will collect those uh, subsequent samples from exactly the same spots. And for you as a scientist, as as a molecular biologist, is this an interesting project? Is it an exciting thing to be part of? It is a super exciting project for me, not only because of its scientific content. I really uh, like the design, how the whole project has been designed because it helps... Uh, our lab as well to do uh, good science. Uh, Probably it was mentioned before that the forest has been separated into three different regions where there are control areas. So actually thanks to this we can uh, we can uh, deliver a really rich content of uh, of results and and uh, conclusions right whether the bison has any effect on the biodiversity. Apart from that it's very emotional for me as well because uh, bison's uh, themselves are the symbol of uh, of how we can repair the damage that we are doing to the environment and also I'm Polish and uh, Poland was one of the countries that contributed the most to saving the species so it's very very emotional for me as well. <laughs> Just tell me a bit about yourself how did you come to be working here at the Natural History Museum? To be honest it Secretly, it has always been my uh, my dream to work here because uh, for the type of biologist that I am, I am a combination not only of a molecular biologist but also classical biologist. I fa- I'm fascinated by zoology and especially in taxonomy, uh, by uh, diversity of the species. Uh, and I always uh, sort of dreamt uh, working here. I was volunteering here as well for many years. Uh, uh, with some of the departments and eventually it happened uh, and uh, I applied for a job and <laughs> I, I was successful and I'm here three years now. It's an amazing space isn't it because I, I certainly didn't realise quite how big the Natural History Museum is. You know, I've been in, I've seen the dinosaur yeah. skeletons, I used to come here as a child, I brought my kids here um, but there is an amazing amount of work that the Natural History Museum is doing in, in real science terms exactly. all the time. Exactly. We have a wide variety of projects, not only our lab, but all the researchers within, within the museum, which is uh, around 200 staff. Uh, and they spread from, uh, from uh, studying the taxonomy of particular group of uh, animals or plants to studying uh, environmental samples, such as soil samples or uh, samples from the deep sea, uh, from the permafrost as well, from, uh, from remote islands, uh, you know, unreachable for people, uh, from the depths of the ocean. So that's enormous amount of 
wide variety of science and not only within natural sciences. I'm a biologist so I can talk about the, the, the biological part of, of the research that the museum does. But we have enormous geological department and also we are dealing with, uh, with space as well, right? Some uh, meteorites are being studied here and uh, so soil samples from Mars, for example, that's, uh, that's what I know. And also we have a conservation team that deals with some science regarding conservation of our collection, right? This is also a science, how to preserve specimens, to prevent them, like taxidermy, from being attacked by fungi uh, and being destroyed. And, and presumably if you're doing a particular bit of research on whatever it happens to be and you need to talk to another expert you can literally walk around the corner and find them here in the building. Exactly, exactly. That's what we do. <laughs> we, uh, we, have to, we communicate with each other and now uh, the departments of life sciences and earth sciences have, have been merged into one science department to enable this communication and make it even easier for us to, to collaborate with each other because uh, nowadays all, we, we cannot be experts on everything. It's literally impossible. The sciences are too big. Mm -hmm. We need to collaborate with each other because like like bricks in the wall or pieces of the puzzle we complement each other and then we can do even more more science well it's a fascinating project and i'm really looking forward to seeing some of the, the 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 results of it so we'll come back in a couple of years have a chat again see what surprises have cropped up exactly and definitely we will show you some some changes because that that's the nature of nature <laughs> which never stands still and uh, keeps changing the question is how the changes uh, will occur and in what direction they will be going. After two years already we, we would be able to say something but the idea of this project is not only to last for those two years so hopefully uh, it will continue for many many years uh, as long as the bisons will be there. Piotr Kuba there and it'll be amazing to go back in a couple of years time and see exactly what impact the bison have started to have in the Bleen. Now that project is huge I mean, the whole Bleen Woods area is well over a thousand acres. Most of us, of course, don't have anywhere near that amount of land to play with. But even if you only have a small domestic garden, it doesn't mean that there isn't an awful lot you can do to help our wildlife. Now, Kent Wildlife Trust has been encouraging people to be a bit more nature-friendly at home for quite a while. And they run a series of open garden days through the summer to let people take a look at what can be achieved in a normal suburban garden with just a little sideways thinking. And the other day, I popped along to Liz Watts' home in Bearstead, just outside of Maidstone, to take a look at what she's been up to. Oh, I've become much less neat and I found that more interesting. <laughs> Much more It's amazing what pops up, isn't it, of its own accord? Absolutely. I mean, look at this front lawn. So this front lawn was mown and it was, as the edge shows, when it's hot, it's just brown. It's brown and incredibly boring. Mm -hmm. So three years ago, I thought, OK, I will keep a lovely neat edge on it so I can get to the borders and I'll let the centre go to meadow. And it's beautiful. I mean, when the wind blows, all the grasses just gently sway. I've introduced four different things into here, but the bird's foot trefoil found its own way in, the marjoram's found its own way in, the hawkweed has. I've put in some yellow rattle, which is parasitic on the grasses, not that they're growing strongly anyway, but that was really pretty in the spring, that had yellow flowers. And that will self-seed now, I'm hoping, and it will come up next year. Um, why, why do you do it? What sort of feeling does it give you when you see it all in flower? Um, 
Mm, good question. Um, it is my it's it's my meditation practice. I expect to some extent. Um, I, I just find it endlessly fascinating. Endlessly fascinating. Right. So, Liz, we've come into the uh, into the back garden. And you've done something very interesting with your lawn here. You've kind of, it's a sort of big teardrop shape. And then you've mowed it in kind of concentric, not quite circles, but concentric teardrops. Absolutely. Yeah. So I thought um, this also gets completely burnt out. You can see the bits that are mown are really brown at the moment and usually looks entirely boring. So this is its first year experiment. So it was obvious to do the outside edges to keep that neat and so I could get to all the borders. And then I kind of roughly followed the line of the outside edges to do these two circles. And I think next year I'll do a different pattern. <laughs> because it's And playing. have you planted up? I can see a bit of yarrows no, come up in the middle just, there. You're just waiting to see what happens. It just, yes, that just happened. There was a lot of self-healing here as well earlier on, flowering. And you can see how poor the lawn is because the grass hasn't grown very tall at all. And I'm not precious about it. So although I've got grass paths, you know, I will walk through. <laughs> The longer areas, that is absolutely fine. And are you going to mow it all back at some point? Yes, like a hay meadow. In the autumn, I'll 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 set the mower on high because it hasn't got particularly high, and I'll just let it sit for a while so any seeds can fall in, and then I'll rake it off. I might, yeah, I will rake it off and put it on the compost heap. Um, and do you would you call yourself a a gardener are you a gardening expert or do you just make no, it up I'm as you go expert. along i make it up as i go along <laughs> i have done some training to be fair so i was a self-employed gardener back in the days uh it was my that was my second uh um my second job my second venture into work working life i was a gardener and i i moved from knowing very little into doing some garden design mm-hmm. but that doesn't take, make me an expert and also i'm of an age now where a lot of that information disappears out of the head you know it's just like i forget plant names they just go um but yeah. it's important to you to to have as much variety as possible and to have a kind of a wilder theme to what you're doing yes with it. it's more interesting i think it's much more interesting so we had an elephant hawk moth caterpillar over here um, at, uh, the other day and 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 also in the grasses so the the birds come down and they like the short grass but all the insects and the moths in particular like this longer grass i've noticed and because i've done the back lawn like it now the front lawn i don't really look at all that much you know we sit in the garden at the back sometimes sit not all that often sit actually but um and so yes you, you get to notice things more and so my style of gardening is uh, it's experimental and not to have any bare soil. So pe- things that people would think of as weeds, some of them are really pretty and they deserve a space in the garden. Do, do you have a favourite weed then? Feverfew. So shall I show you my yes, feverfew? So, and that pops up everywhere and you can pull it out easily. So it's not a thug. Here we go. There's a bit of feverfew. See now... How pretty that is! A gar- that is worthy of being in the garden with its lovely little white flowers, uh-huh. and the insects love it. This is um, some yarrow achillea that just pops itself in the border as well, mm-hmm. and that's really nice. 
And yeah. these are all sat in, so we've got some, what, uh, thyme here? No, no, sorry, no, sage. sage yeah. So we've we got some sage here, mm-hmm. we've got some rubecki, we've yeah. got uh, Michaelmas daisies, yeah. we've got some uh, anemones. So it's like yeah. a real mixture of stuff which is kind of garden centre bought. Yes. And there's some, what, Asiatic lilies over there. Yes. And um, it's a real mixture of garden centre plants and whatever has chosen to yes. poke its head up. Absolutely. So the evening primrose coming up there, that put itself there. It's also um, put itself all amongst the paving, but that's fine. I mean, I walk on it. I don't care if it wants to survive my walking on it. That's fine. It, <laughs> but but in the borders, unless it's in a, in a, a problem area, I, I'll let it flower. It's, it's a sort of Darwinian process, isn't it? If, if it can survive, <laughs> then good luck yes. to it. Yes, that, that, that old thing, right, right plant, right place, or right place, right plant, whichever way around it is yeah and this border is a problem it's got um it's got some probably a fungus in it i don't know whether it is uh i'm not sure what it is i don't ever see any fruiting bodies but the shrubs do not do well in this border so it's really nice that when a shrub is starting to die that i've got uh, a lot of the wild you know like something tall like the evening primrose to to take its place or to hide it up a little bit um I still keep pointing the shrubs in because I do. I like the the different levels, and the and the and the creatures like the different levels. So, I'm I'm sort of embarking on my wilding up the garden journey. What key bits of advice would you give me? Don't be afraid to experiment. Uh, things don't always work. That's normal. Um, see what. Uh, Get get used to seeing the seedlings and knowing what they will turn into so you know whether to whip them out because they are going to be crowding out some of the plants you particularly have just put in, yeah. like the penstemon here. Um, uh, you, I wouldn't want that crowded out by evening primrose. So if, if some came round there, I'd take them out, but in other places I'd leave them. So just get to know your plants and feel free to pull some out in places, but also let some carry on. I don't know whether that's enough information. Mm. I think that's that's enough for me to get going with. I'll carry on doing that. (laughs) Lovely. And Liz Watts' garden really is lovely. Thanks for your time, Liz. In fact, it's not just her garden. For the last few years, she's been part of a scheme that's been doing some guerrilla nature gardening along an alleyway next to her house. With the blessing of people in charge and in the neighbourhood, they've been planting loads of native species and creating spaces for insects and birds to thrive there. You really don't need much space to make a real difference. And it's not just about the plants that you can see. It's the fact that you can help protect some of Britain's rarest and shyest mammals by allowing the garden to be a bit more ragged. I'm talking about bats. Now, bats feed on insects, thousands upon thousands of them. And so anything that you can do to encourage more insects to thrive will help our endangered bats out enormously. Hazel Ryan from the Kent Bat Group was at Liz's garden and I couldn't resist the opportunity of having a little chat with her. Gardens are becoming more and more important for bats because we're we're losing a lot of their natural habitat and insect numbers are declining. So if people can create more spaces in gardens where bats can feed and shelter and drink from ponds then um, that's really good and I think sometimes bats are an overlooked species when people are thinking about wildlife you know they think of maybe hedgehogs and birds in the garden but maybe not the bats as well because they don't always see them because they're nocturnal. 
So how, if, if you wanted to encourage bats in your own garden, how do you go about doing that? Are there any things that you can actually do to make it a nicer environment for a bat? Yes, definitely. I mean, shelter is important because bats don't like to feed in very open windswept places. So on a, on a windy night, having a sheltered area with hedges and trees um, and undergrowth um, it is good for them because that means the insects will be flying as well because insects don't like flying when it's very windy. Um, and, and having a pond because bats need to drink. Um, and a pond also encourages some of the, the smaller insects, which a lot of our native bats need. Um, one of our, our most common bats, the common pipistrelle, feeds on 3,000 mosquitoes and midges every night. So wow. having a little bit of water yeah. will really help. Um, and some of our bigger bats will feed on sort of small moths and flies um, and things like cockchafers. So really having a nice diverse garden with lots of different species of plants as well. Plants that attract insects, so long grass, um, flowers which are a single rather than double um, they don't have to be native plants but but ones which are, are more similar to our native plants right okay so like dog rose and things like that yes so um, um, yeah things like dog rose honeysuckle um, some of the night scented plants like sort of catch flies um, uh, are good for right, them okay and you've got a bat in your lap <laughs> You've got a plastic box here, all wrapped up. It's a really hot day, so obviously you've got to be a bit careful with bat handling, haven't you? But can we have a look? That's right, yes. So, so I'm just going to lift up the side of, of the cloth so that you can see the bat's just sheltering inside the tank there. Oh, he's moved around to the other side. So unfortunately this bat can't go back oh, to the look. wild because he was caught by a cat and right. injured. Uh-huh. Um, his injuries have healed, but he just can't fly well enough to And what, to what kind of a bat have we got here? So this is the common pipistrelle. So it is our most common species um, that people are likely to see in their gardens because these roost um, in our houses, so under tiles on the roof. Um, or hanging tiles on the side of the house. But unfortunately, none of our bat species are common today. Um, they, they've all declined. But it is one of our smallest species as well. So only Yeah, I mean, it's only sort of as big as your thumb, really, isn't it? Yes, yeah. And where do they roost? So you were talking about sort of plants and that kind of thing. If you want to encourage bats in your garden, are they, can you get bat roosts? You can put up a bat box, and the one we recommend is the one that's called the Kent's Bat Box, which, which was designed by Kent Bat Group. And you can find that online if you just Google Kent Bat Box. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a wooden box, um, and the bats will crawl up and, and, and sort of squeeze into the crevices. They like nice, narrow crevices. Um, but actually, where do you physically put it? Do you put it on the wall of the house or hide it up a tree? Or where, where do you put um, it? You can put it on the wall of a house or you can put it on a tree. But actually, many bats actually prefer to roost in or on our houses so a lot of people don't even realize that they have bats using their house and they might be just tucked underneath the tiles on the outside of the house because they're very small they don't make nests they don't um chew anything so they just literally hang there and they're so tiny you know you could fit a hundred of these bats in one shoe box quite easily and what is it about bats that you love because what was what was the word there chiroptera Chiropterologist. Chiropterologist. What 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 led you down the path of you know falling in love with bats? Um, I mean, they're really fascinating creatures because they're very long lived. So one of these pipistrels could live for fifteen years. Oh wow! Really? Um, Another species found in the UK can live for forty three years. Um, but they, they breed very slowly, so they only have one baby a year, so it's important to protect them um, and rescue any bats that be fine. But also they're, they're very intelligent animals, um, and they're very social animals. They live in family groups. They return to the same roosts year after year. Um, they, they know um, 
you know where to go in winter to hibernate they know where to go and feed and they learn all this from each other as well so they are fascinating creatures and there's still so much we don't know about them so we're finding out more about bats all the time from research and do you, do you have a i mean it's probably you can't name your favorite bat but you know what which are the ones that you get most excited about Oh, it's difficult really because it's nice if we find rare bats that we don't see very often. So recently we found a Brant's bat on the Isle of Sheppey, which was nice. Uh, one that we don't normally see in East Kent. Um, but I think long-eared bats are one of the most beautiful ones because they have very huge long ears and very big eyes. So they look very cute. <laughs> <laughs> and was there a moment when you like, literally fell in love with bats? Were you a child was there, or have you just always loved them? I've always been interested in wildlife, but I think um, I remember a volunteer from Kent Bat Group coming to an event that I was at where I was working as a ranger in, in London Borough Bromley, and she brought along a bat which couldn't be released to the world, and it was a nocturnal bat, one of our biggest bats. Uh, and it was such a beautiful bat, and it had such a character that I think I just fell in love with them at that stage. Amazing um, stuff. And as a final thought then, what key bits of advice would you give to somebody we're looking at a wilder garden here today for people who are doing stuff in and around the house and around the garden if you want to encourage bats what should you do i think stop using pesticides so try to to get away without any using any chemicals in the garden leaving a a rough area of long grass or sort of undisturbed corner having log piles um, and having some sort of shelter so natural hedges and um, little lines of trees would be good. Brilliant stuff. Well, Hazel, it's been lovely having a chat. Thanks ever so much for your time. You're welcome. <laughs> and I'm going to go off and practice saying chiropter. What was it again? Chiropterologist. <laughs> chiropterologist. I'll get it eventually. Thank you. Chiropterology. Chiropterology. See, I can say it. Just takes practice. It comes from the Greek, apparently. The Greek word for hand, chiro, and the Greek word for wing, ptera, as in pterodactyl. Uh, so chiropterology there you go bats actually fly with their hands i know it's good isn't it many thanks to hazel ryan from the uh, kent bat group for that and if you want to actually build a bat box to create a space where bats can safely roost where you live then take a look at their website kentbatgroup.org.uk there's loads of other great bat related information on there as well Now, you may remember in a previous episode, I had a chat with a chap called Martin Richmond Cogger, who's farming his land regeneratively near Ashford. Martin's actually part of a wider group of farmers who are trying to do their bit to make the land more nature-friendly and biodiverse. A cluster of farmers, in fact, brought together by the Kent Wildlife Trust to share experiences and best practice and to try and join the dots between them to make changes at a landscape scale. Well, Ellen Wilson is Kent Wildlife Trust's Farmer Cluster Officer for the Upper Belt Catchment Area, the belt being a river that feeds into the Medway. And we met at Martin's Farm, where she told me what it's all about. It's so lovely. So yeah, Martin is part of our um, farmer cluster and um, so it's a farmer-led cluster. Um, And yeah, we've got a few farms up this way, but it's absolutely beautiful. It's such a unique area. Um, So we're in the low world of Kent. Um, and yeah, absolutely beautiful. Some wonderful wildlife around here and yeah, amazing farms. So what do you do as, a, as an officer who's <laughs> having a chat with farmers who are part of the cluster? What's your role? What do you say to them? So my role, so I facilitate the cluster really. So um, the cluster is funded, uh, so it's a funded project by Southern Water. So they fund it because they want to reduce pesticides getting into the river belt. Um, so most of these come from arable, um, but by working collaboratively with all farmers, um, it's just a good way to get everyone engaged in the project. 
Um, so though the cluster has that, it is still farmer-led. So my role really is to listen to what the farmers want to look into um, and then we go from there. So um, at the minute we've got a really great project of nightingale surveys. So right. nightingales are a priority species in the area and they are the flagship species for the Upper Belt Cluster. Um, so a Martin's farm actually here has got a really great population of nightingales. He does run some really lovely events, which uh -huh. I'm sure he won't mind me plugging. Um, but yeah, absolutely wonderful. So we've been carrying out surveys with our ecologist um, and yeah, we're trying to look at how we can build habitat and build connectivity across the cluster. And so, so it's basically an ongoing conversation and you, yeah. you talk to the farmers, they talk to you, they're suggesting stuff. It's kind of like it goes both ways. It's not yeah. just you saying you must do this. No, definitely not. It's definitely, we have a steering group. So we have five farmers on the steering group and we have regular meetings. We talk about all the things they want to do. So also another element is natural capital assessment. So looking at alternative funding streams for farmers is something that they're looking at um, and a natural capital gives you a baseline of your farm so yeah the farmers wanted to do that so we managed to do four of them and then we're going to be presenting them to the rest of the cluster so everyone can learn and then hopefully do some more as well with the budget that we've got so. and what are the kind of practical things that are been happening as a result of this? Yeah, so um, there's quite loads of different practical things. Actually, this is a really great example on this farm. So Martin has been working with the Cluster and South East Rivers Trust um, to put in some leaky dams on the farm. So leaky dams? Leaky dams. Right. So it's basically doing the work of beavers um, but doing it ourselves. So okay. it's <laughs> South East Rivers Trust. You're, you're literally beavering away. Uh, yes, well, we've got a good team doing it. <laughs> but South East Rivers Trust have um, been doing all the project work for it. It's been funded by Southern Water, um, but all members of the clusters have been working. So I think there's about seven farmers working together in one area. And um, yeah, they've installed these leaky dams and the plan is... So to what does a leaky dam look like? What do you, what do you make it from? <laughs> so you make it from wood, just bits of scrubby sticks and material like that. It kind of gets bundled up together and you can put it in the water, you can put it in different ways. So sometimes you put it kind of flowing with it so the water can flow through or up against it to hold back some of that debris. And what does that actually do? What's the point of it? So it's to slow the flow. So a big issue with the um, river belt, and I think with several rivers really, is that you'll have heavy rainfalls and it will just flow really fast downstream. And then places like Yalding has severe flooding. Um, so if you can hold it back in the catchment in those big flood events, it will just slow the flow down. It will help keep water up here, make some wetter habitats, so some wet woodlands, um, and then slowly release it down through in a more natural way. Okay, and then there's so that's a kind of a win-win. There's a win for the yes. human population downstream. And then you get more biodiversity in those wet, wetter areas. Yes, and we're also trying to see if we can link that in with the nightingales as well to see if that really helps improve that habitat for them by getting that wetter woodland. They've got more insects potentially, more food. Um, and yeah, really exciting to okay. look into. Now, literally just over there is the pond, yes. which is a, a recent creation what tell me about the pond because that's quite special in its own right yeah so that pond has been created as a great crested newt pond so it's a scheme from natural england and um, they funded it and yeah that pond has been put there to try and get some more great crested newts in um, they do regular testing on it to see if there have been any found but also as you see we've got these beautiful house martins diving in they're collecting mud um, there's loads of insects around there as well so it's doing loads of great work and for you personally, how does it make you feel when you come out to see a farm working like this? 
I absolutely love it. It is the best part of my job. I have to admit, I think I've probably got one of the best jobs in the world. <laughs> I get to just walk around these farms with the farmers, hear everything they're doing. I mean, as you've seen, we've got beautiful hedges around here. They're supporting so much life. The meadows are amazing. Just seeing all the different birds that we've seen today, all the insects with butterflies. And then Martin is very unique here with this beautiful garden that we've got behind us, which is part of his charity. And yeah, getting lots of people on board, learning about nature and yeah, just getting really involved. Because farmers have had a bit of a, a bum rap down the years. Is maybe, you know, the weather's always wrong and the money's, there's never any money and all that kind of stuff. They're not all grumpy all the time, are they? God, definitely not. And I don't blame them about the weather, especially here on the clay. I mean, you'll suddenly get all this rain. It is very waterlogged. And then, as you've seen today, it's really dry. It dries straight up. So there is a number of issues. But um, all by working collaboratively, collaboratively together um yeah they can come up with new ideas new initiatives on how that they can farm that better and yeah, just make it a really beautiful scene and when you're speaking to them just hearing the passion about the wildlife i think yeah that's one of my favorite aspects ellen wilson farmer cluster officer for the upper belt isn't it lovely to hear from somebody who genuinely believes that they've got the best job in the world it's great isn't it Well, we're nearing the end of this episode of Talk on the Wild Side. Thank you for making it this far. It means you are officially in the top 1% of excellent people globally. So, as a bonus treat, here are some news headlines from the front line of nature conservation this month. We'll start with a biggie. The House of Lords has blocked government plans to change river pollution rules for house builders, a proposed amendment to the Leveling Up and Regeneration Bill would have directed competent authorities to ignore scientific evidence when making planning and development decisions under the Habitats regulations where nutrient pollution in wastewater is a relevant consideration. That is to say, house builders wouldn't have been forced to pay for mitigation for any pollution that they cause. Well, opposition parties were united in, well, opposition, and it didn't make it through the Lords. It was defeated by 203 votes to 156, a majority of 47. The Wildlife Trusts in response have said that the proposal offered an utterly false choice between housing and pollution, and that millions of people that are fed up with the pollution in our rivers will be very grateful. Now in Kent, a video clip of a dog let off the leash to chase wild birds on the marshes at Pegwell Bay has gone viral with the animal chasing birds in what is a protected area set aside for them to rest and feed. At this time of year, migratory birds heading south from the oncoming Arctic winter need spaces like Pegwell Bay to recuperate. And Kent Wildlife Trust protected area warden Nina Jones says that a dog frolicking in the water with birds may to some look harmless, but it causes a huge amount of stress on those birds who simply won't return to the area. So I would ask all dog walkers in the area, please respect the dog control area and keep your pet on a lead. Owners risk a £100 fine if they let their dog off the lead in the protected zone. And finally... Happy first birthday to the first bison calf born in the wild in the UK for 12,000 years. Yay! The calf was a surprise arrival in Bleen Woods last summer. She's grown a huge amount in that time from a shy small calf and transformed into an ecosystem engineer with an impressive set of horns. I'm rather hoping to get into the woods at Bleen with the rangers to have a closer look at what they do at some point. Keep an ear out in future episodes. 
Well, that's it for Talk on the Wild Side podcast for this episode. I'm off out into the garden to do absolutely nothing and know that it's the best thing that I can do to be lazy and virtuous. What a win-win situation. This has been a Wild Rover Media production for Kent Wildlife Trust. I've been Rob Smith. And until the next time, if you possibly can, do go wild in the country. Bye. Bye.